Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction. This is a podcast, episode two, of the novel McDowell by William H. Coles, author of award-winning stories and novels, and the creator of the website for writers, storyandliteraryfiction.com. Let's continue with episode two of McDowell. Chapter 19 Hiram traveled with Sophie and Billy to Kathmandu and set them up with their own furnished apartments on the top floor of a three-story complex near the hospital. The apartments were leased by the Foundation for Visiting Doctors and Dignitaries in a safe, upscale area. Those VIPs who were felt to be potentially too important for fundraising efforts stayed in the rooms available on the hospital grounds. Rima a nurse coordinator and Hiram's companion in Nepal, met Sophie, Billy, and Hiram at the airport. Rima nestled into Hiram's outstretched arms with affection, intensified by their long absences apart. It was clear Hiram stayed with Rima while he was in Kathmandu. Sophie glanced a questioning look at Billy. She wondered if he'd known about this. Sophie took a few days to settle into her apartment after Hiram left and then with Rima's help, planned her first photographic excursion with the hospital staff on one of their periodic trips to villages in the countryside. On an ideal day, the sun made its ascent behind the snow-covered mountains, and the morning light in the valley seemed weighted with dusk from the previous night. Within minutes, the sun drew burning lava-glowing halos into the sky that laid spectral, earthly shadows vibrant with night-blue-black. Sophie had been ready for more than an hour when Rima came with a driver and two vans. The second van was staff and equipment from the hospital. They left Kathmandu on the road to Tatopani. Rima explained she and the staff would vaccinate and distribute antibiotics for pneumonias and inject iron supplements for anemia throughout the rural areas. Sophie expected to photograph in the villages while the work was going on. This was her first excursion practice for extending her travels with Billy, but without Rima, who must meet her caregiving responsibilities. Sophie gasped. The van barely missed a heavy-duty Chinese truck the color of granite, the shape of half a train boxcar coming head-on. Horns blew and neither vehicle braked. Instead, both swerved in contrasting unity, avoiding collisions with seemingly impossible maneuvers. Rima looked to Sophie, and Sophie managed a weak smile. If Billy was affected by the road with little pavement, no markings, unyielding traffic, and covered with nonchalant humans, chickens, goats, and debris, Sophie could not tell. She thought of Ivana in Turkey before she was killed, wondered what her feelings were at that moment and when she first arrived. Ivana would not be one to be afraid, and Sophie felt shame for her petty fears. Sophie took her camera from her bag, checked the settings, and began taking pictures of the traffic which was hard to frame through the windshield. But each shot was filled with random humans and animals skirting among trash and rubble and the ever-threatening vehicles, even in the rural areas, where all of civilization seemed to exist writhing on the snake-width curves of the never-straight road. No one spoke over the clanks and groans of the van. Rocks pelted the undercarriage. The engine backfired, and it was almost impossible to understand even a shout. When they stopped, the driver spoke no more than twelve words of English, 
four of which seemed to mean don't. Rama had an accent and often fractured syntax, but she was understandable, and, with her soft vowels and crisp consonants, she was a pleasure to listen to. Two hours later, the van arrived at a village. Sophie thought of it as a refugee camp with makeshift housing, no electricity, and water gathered from a nearby stream draining from the mountains. But remnants of generations cluttered the landscape. Rima met the others from the other van, and they set about their examinations and treatments in a lean-to, open in front and on the sides. Monsoon season had started, and a gentle misty rain enveloped the city, not unpleasant or aggravating. Rima and her team were expected, and more than fifty people, mainly women with children and the elderly, stood, squatted, sat, or lay waiting their turns patiently. Although Sophie could see no semblance of a line, or even a system for identifying who might be next. Sophie snapped pictures. Billy carried her gear, two other cameras, and an assortment of lenses and batteries in a backpack. Rima came to them both. Come, Rima said. There is a girl I want you to meet. She is special in mind, and I think have great, uh, I think you say, promise. She is away, and I must take you to her. Sophie and Billy followed Rima maybe two hundred yards through the village. At one point there was a two-foot metal statue surrounded by concrete block. The statue and concrete splashed with dried and still wet blood. Sophie pointed with a questioning look. It is of Kali, Rima said, Shiva's companion who slays evil. Rima did not slow down as Sophie ran to catch up to her. Sacrifices? Sophie asked. Rima nodded, but said no more. In another hundred yards, they came to a shed with a low door and no windows. The floor was dirt. Four goats lay near the back wall. At the side, a girl sat with her back against the wall, her knees up with her arms resting on them, her skirts covering her legs. She had a plastic bottle with water by her side. Sophie took pictures. Rima talked to the girl in quick spurts. The girl stared with brown eyes dark as a hillside cave and a faint smile on her thin lips. She shook her head twice, and her night-black hair, covered in a red bandana, fell over her left shoulder. Her hand gathered the strands and stroked them absently. This is Shristi, Rima said. The girl looked from Sophie to Billy and smiled. She is very smart, and I want her to come to work for you while you and Katmandu. Work for us? Sophie asked. She clean, cook, buy food, run errands. She learn English word, help you translate. We don't need help, Sophie said, acutely aware of Billy gazing whenever he could at the stunning beauty of the girl. No, it is right. We would pay, of course, Sophie said. No, foundation pay, and Shristi deserves the opportunity, Sophie interrupted. Chance to do better. Rima said. Rima looked into Sophie's eyes, and Sophie knew Rima's caring and hoped to give Shristi a better life. It is right, Rima, said. Sophie nodded, and Rima spoke to Shristi, who stood up. Sophie took pictures. She is ready, Rima said. She lives here, in a goat shed, Billy asked. Oh, no, Rima said. Not live. It is Shopati. I thought that was illegal, Sophie said. 
Many villages practice old ways. The four of them went back to the lean-to clinic. Tristy will wait here until we go back, Ramus said. You make photographs. Sophie started her photography. What is Shopati? Billy asked Sophie. In some places, women are banned from the home during their periods. They are not allowed to touch kitchen utensils, share the same water source, go to school, or sleep inside the home during their periods. They sleep where they can, sometimes even in the open. Billy closed his eyes briefly to emphasize his wonder at the customs in this country. She is beautiful, he said. I got some really good shots, even as we went in, Sophie said. A goat shed? Billy said under his breath. Chapter 20 Sophie received a letter from her editor. Dear Sophie, We've enjoyed what you've sent us. Great potential, and the girl with the goats, incredibly moving. I know you're documenting the plight of women, which is devastating from what you've done so far. But there is so much done that I feel, as we all do at Viridian House, there is a need to put the work in context, not only with the environment, but also by contrasting genders and the age groups. You've done a few children with women. That's good. But more and maybe some contrast with men, too. And we think most of your work is Hindi. What about the Buddhist and Muslim cultures that envelop Nepal? Is there something to be learned there without losing your emphasis on the state of women in general and even enhancing the effect on the viewer? Now keep us abreast of your progress. Will you be able to make the six-month deadline? Regards to your father. Sincerely, Emil Prendergast, Editor-in-Chief. Sophie responded by email. Dear Mr. Prendergast, Thank you for your letter. Nice to hear from you. I was, however, concerned with the tone. Do you feel I'm not meeting your expectations? Are you suggesting an either-or for publication? And as far as expansion of subject matter, I thought you set a strict limit on the number of photographs you'd take. Do your suggestions mean I have no limits? I already have thousands of great images that I think would fit well into the scope of a larger book. With best regards, Sophie. Sophie walked from her apartment to Billy's place at the other end of the building. As always, the door was unlocked, and she entered without knocking. Sophie stared at the cloister-tidy apartment. For the first time ever, the bed, visible through the doorless portal in the bedroom, had the edges of the covers cornered with hospital precision, not a wrinkle. The open door to the bathroom showed towels folded and hung on the racks, a pristine white bath mat next to the tub and a cover slip over the toilet seat with an embroidered bird in flight. The kitchenette had cleared counters, and the two chairs were lined up perfectly with a small wooden table. To one side of the living room, Billy worked near a table in a straight-backed chair, carving a block of light green laminated wood maybe a foot and a half square at the base and two feet high. The shape of a human head was emerging. Billy worked on his lap, sanding the wood block, he accidentally knocked a drumstick, one of many, from the table in front of him. He picked it up. He had carved and finished the drumsticks from traditional and exotic woods and now shipped finished products back to the States where now a number of stores took special orders and displayed his three most popular standard sizes and weights. He started carving scenes, too. 
when Sophie didn't need him, he worked on variations of Hindu masks, reliefs of distant mountains stained and painted with majestic snowcaps and caressing cloud layers. Shristy had made the difference in Billy's domestic efficiency, arriving daily seven days a week. No one knew how Shristy came to work and exactly how she got from the house of a distant cousin she stayed with in the outskirts of Kathmandu. Then Rima found an abandoned but functional motor scooter for Shristi and advanced her money for fuel. Shristi's English improved from the intensity she applied to learning. She was always seeking the right word, seeking the best pronunciation. And when she worked, Sophie had begun to talk to Shristi about the photography and about America. And Sophie asked Shristi about her dreams, which were sadly limited because of the void of opportunities in the village and in Nepal altogether. Bro, Sophie said. Got word from the editor to expand. Need time in Tibet, maybe even China. I'll set up for a month or two. Billy said nothing. You all right with that, she said. Billy shrugged. Ah, uh, sure. Oh my, she thought. He doesn't want to be away from Shristi. As Sophie was about to leave, Shristi came in with produce from the market in her arms. She went straight to the kitchenette as she greeted Sophie and Billy and returned carrying a chair back from the kitchen to sit near the table slightly in front of Billy. Billy turned his attention to creating Shristi's image. Silently, Sophie watched with admiration at the precision with which he handled his tools. He repeatedly looked to Shristi's face for guidance in shaping her emerging image in the woodblock. It was his first attempt at the sculpture of a human head. Shristi visited daily to clean Sophie's apartment. Always at the same time, she came and left. Sophie began to look forward to her soft steps in the hall, her shy entrance, her greeting that sounded like the gentle breeze of the leaves of a tree. As she worked, Shristi frequently looked to Sophie. How do you say? she asked, pointing to an object. Bowl, Sophie said. Shristi tried to imitate, but the response was unrecognizable, yet sounded more pleasant and always more beautiful with Shristi's lyrical voice, Sophie thought. Shristi laughed with embarrassment, and Sophie smiled encouragement and spoke again. Bowl. After many tries, Shristi quickly improved, faster than anyone could expect. And Sophie often touched her gently and said, Very good, Shristi, very good and Shristi smiled self-consciously. With Sophie's encouragement, Shristi added ten to fifteen new words a day, nouns at first, then simple verb forms, and then modifiers, and Sophie read in English to Shristi, keeping her longer than she should, she knew, because Shristi had other work, but Sophie enjoyed being with Shristi so much she could not stop keeping her as long as she could. Chapter 21. Sophie. In response to her editor's demands, Sophie and Billy traveled to photograph a funeral. Above the stone steps that form the bank of a river, level ground is paved in stone, and a dead man's younger sons add wood to the funeral pyre upon it. A few feet away, the wife, dressed in red, leaning back on her knees, her arms outstretched, wails with the sharp tones of a scream. Sophie stands on the opposite riverbank, taking pictures. Billy is shooing two monkeys that deliberately annoy them from a perch on one of two stone pillars. A few yards away, 
an emaciated man in only a loincloth with a gray beard sits with legs crossed, meditating. His body is off-white with some sort of dried covering with sequins caught in it. He puffs weed occasionally. I don't like that guy, Billy says. Sadhu, a holy man, Sophie said. I know, but he looks like a zombie. Ash or chalk, I think. Maybe paint. I wish he wouldn't look at us. Hold the tripod, Sophie said. Billy stabilizes the tripod, and Sophie focuses her lens. Across the river, where the sons of the dead man, who is now wrapped in orange cloth and covered with the flowers, his head and bare feet exposed, slide the corpse on a bamboo stretcher, feet first, until the body is half submerged in the river. Three times they complete the ritual immersions. The first son bays fully submerged. Then the body is carried again to the flat ground above the river steps and placed on a funeral pyre, under which wood logs crisscross in a pyramidal stack. The first son ignites the pyre, and when the flesh is charred, the crowd of relatives and family that had gathered slowly disperse. Flames turn muscle and bone to ash. Sophie changes lenses often, and after many wide-angle views, trains on the faces of men. Only a few women are in the crowd. She sees an older woman, presumably the mother, grieving. The woman wails, but the sound dissipates as it floats across the river. How much longer? Billy asks. You don't like it? Sophie says. Creepy. We stay until the deceased ashes are swept into the river. We've got to get back before dark, Billy says. Find the driver. Ask him how long we've got. With Billy gone for a few minutes, Sophie takes another camera from Billy's backpack and frames shots of Sadhu from various angles. She drops a generous number of coins into his outstretched hand when she is finished. He smiles a toothpaste grin. Billy returns, collapses the tripod, caps lenses, and begins packing. Sophie slaps him from behind on the side of the head. What the shit are you doing? We're not going back in the dark. And we're not sleeping out here, Billy says. I'm not here to miss opportunities, Sophie responds. Billy grabs her arm and draws her close to him, face to face. He is taller, and for the first time she can ever remember, she shrinks under the shadow of his imposing stature. We're not here to die, Billy says. You're my sister, and we're not taking risks. She steps back, her breath caught at his assertiveness. Where is docile Billy, she thinks. She brought him to be a compliant companion. This is almost domineering. Cool it, she says, without her usual authority. But he steps forward to within inches of her to intimidate. Get your stuff, he says. I'll meet you at the van. A few minutes later, without a word, Sophie gets into the van and they start back to Kathmandu late in the day. And already lengthening shadows, partially obscure wrecks, overturned trucks, barely visible potholes deep enough to swallow a goat, wandering sacred cows, pedestrians, and hairpin curves with no barriers to prevent unguarded drops from cliff edges thousands of feet high. Sophie silently sees that she's been denied shots of a lifetime. We could have made it, she says. The driver won't drive after dark, Billy whispers to Sophie. His brother got killed in a nighttime bus accident. 
We could drive ourselves, Sophie says. Ah, grow up, Billy says. On Tuesday morning, Sophie went to Billy's apartment to show him the edits from the funeral shots the previous day. She thought they were spectacular. Billy was at his carving table, working on two mountains in bas-relief. The apartment was cluttered with discarded clothing, and his bed was unmade. On the floor, surrounded in wood chips, was the now obvious head carving of Shristi. It's a mess, Sophie said, sweeping her hand to indicate the apartment. You're not my mother, he said. Why had he become so hostile, she thought. Who would want to be your mother, she said. I don't want you to be my mother. Just know that you're not. Hey, I came to show you the photos. Busy, he said. Sophie took a few deep breaths. What is going on, she thought. What's wrong, she finally said. Was it the funeral, the drive? True, his tone had offended her, mostly, and his arrogant defiance of her supremacy as an older sister. She couldn't help but resent that. It's not that, Billy said. You were right, Billy. It was a risk. I was wrong. There, an apology, she thought. Billy kept working. Sophie felt the despair in his silence. His emotions emanated from the heart, and she was shocked by their depth and intensity. It was more than the altercation at the funeral, and it was more than Billy's unexpected disrespect for her, more than his refusal to accept her apology. His jaw clenched. Screw it, she said, turning to leave. Shristi's not been here, he said faintly. Is she still doing your place? So it was Shristi, Sophie thought for a second. Yes, she said. Her place was spotless yesterday and for every day since Shristi had arrived. How long's it been? she asked. Five days, Billy said. Maybe she's sick, Sophie said. But working for you? His logic was right. You'll have to go it on your own, she said, seeing it was not what he wanted to hear. Is it the money, he asked. I thought the foundation paid her. I don't think it could be money. That's not Shristi. And Rima would have told me. I'll pay her. How do I find her, he said. Rima will know. I'll ask. Go see her today, Billy said. I'm working the market today. Jesus, Sophie, you could talk to Ryman and work the market. It's not that big a deal. Billy got up and went into the bathroom, drawing the barely opaque hanging curtain over the doorless opening behind him. Sophie left, her irritation mixed with disbelief at the change in her brother in the last few days. Was it only Shristi? Or was it being away from home? Or living in a bizarre land with few friends and little to do? Rima was busy with patience when Sophie waited for over an hour. Rima took Sophie to the corner of the clinic where supplies were stored so they could hear. It is very good to see you, Sophie. It's been too long. Is your father well? Rima said. You don't hear from him? Only just before he arrived here. And you're all right with that? He's been gone a month. Yes, Rima said. Sophie had always been curious. Do you miss him when he's gone? Of course. You're not married? Sophie asked. I never marry. I go to school. Sophie studied Rama briefly. 
a giving woman with a beautiful soul from another culture who still made a difference in a sexist culture where men, and most women too, considered women to be barely more than domestic animals. She wanted to ask Rhyma if she loved Hiram, but she could not. Rhyma would not know what love meant to Americans, other than what might be seen in movies and on what television was available. And that was hardly representative of selfish love between two humans in a way Nepalese woman would never experience or understand. Shristi stopped going to my brothers to work, Sophie said. It take time, but I find somebody to help out, Rima said. Is it money? He is willing to pay. It is not money. The foundation is generous. Your father is much respected. Why not Shristi? She really suits us both. It is not right now. I want best for Shristi. She's smart and school best to give her life she deserve. What's that got to do with Billy? He looks at her with gaze like moonlight. She is beautiful to look at. No, it is much more. She sits so he can carve the wood. She helps him? No, he make her in wood. She is like, how do you say, the same thing? His model. Yes, his model. He looks at her sometimes with desire like waterfall, and she is afraid. He would never hurt her, Sophie said. Oh, no. She is afraid like she want to like him, too. She loves Billy? She simple girl with much chance, more than most. Her family no like her with white man's child. To be mother would keep her from school. It not easy to be mother. Billy wouldn't do that to her. He think like that. I see it. Rama, he would not do that. Rama looked away. Not what your father say. Your brother make baby with girl. He tell me girl at fault. Billy leave her. Never, Sophie said. It is what I know. Rima's unshakable honesty and Billy's opportunities with Shristi convinced Sophie Rima's worries were justified. Did he pay her for modeling, Sophie asked. Yes, he give her money every time. At first I think that good for her, Sophie sighed. Thanks, Rima, she said, and gave Rima a hug that Rima did not return. Sophie entered Billy's place without knocking. He was half asleep on the bed, dressed but without socks and shoes. Sophie stopped in the opening to the room. I spoke to Rima, she said. They know about Tasha. They couldn't. Billy sat up on the edge of the bed, blinking his eyes. Our father told Rima. Billy stared without comprehension. You can't deny it, Sophie said. He still didn't seem to know what Sophie was talking about. I talked to Rama. She's afraid you're trying to woo Shristi. None of your business, Sophie. Are you? Of course not. Did you try? Billy said nothing. Rama knows how you feel. Shristi thought you desired her, that you paid her to model for a purpose, and that you looked at her funny like men do. Oh, for Christ's sake, Billy said. Did you ask Christy to stay at night? Billy remained silent. Guilty, Sophie thought. What about Tasha, she said. Dad wouldn't tell about Tasha. He told Rima. I think he tells her whatever is on his mind. He can trust her, probably one of the few in this world he can trust. 
I wish he hadn't, Billy said. Do you like that he lives with her when he's here? Sophie asked. I don't know. I guess it's all right. Even when Mom was alive? Since we were kids, probably. I wonder if he has children by her, Sophie mused. I don't know. I don't think so, Billy said. How do you feel about Rima? Billy's had so many women. Maybe this is the one he really cares for. And you think that's okay, Billy asked. He'd never admit it, but he needs love, Billy, Sophie said. Real love. It's nothing about love. He needs sex, Billy said. Because that's how you feel about Tristy, isn't it? You can't stay away. Billy's eyes revealed his repressed desire for Tristy. Rightman would put no demands on him, Billy said, with more insight Sophie thought him capable of. She would accept him for who he is. And what about Tasha? What did she do for you? I can't see her. Carol will never let me. Tasha didn't marry, did she? Billy hesitated. I, I don't know for sure. I don't think so. My God, she's the mother of your child. You don't know? He shrugged. She won't answer my emails, he admitted. I think she still lives with her mother. She came to me, you know. But she wasn't a whore. I liked her. Sophie shook her head. Oh, sure. Typical male. She comes to you, forces your limp dick into her virgin vagina while you're eating SpaghettiOs and Reese's peanut butter cups in bed watching sports on TV, gets pregnant, and you never speak up. Dad talked to Carol. He refused to let me see Tasha after that. Carol wanted us to get married before the baby came. That's reasonable in my moral world, Sophie said. Dad wouldn't listen to her. He said it wasn't mine, but Carol said she could get DNA proof. Dad then said I'd been trapped. That was when he sent me to Cal State for a semester. He gave Carol money for child support in a lump sum and gave her the house. But when did all this happen, Sophie asked. The years before you went to New York, before Dad divorced, you were the one who refused to see even Carol after you left for Chicago. And it's yours, isn't it? Sophie asked. Billy looked down and away, and his silence told her he was the father. You can't feel good about this, Billy, she said after a few seconds. Your little secret. Billy stayed quiet and looked away. Does Anne know? Sophie asked. Anne, deep in religion, always odd about her tolerance of sexual improprieties, wouldn't approve. She would see it as a mortal sin. I don't think so, Billy said. Sophie was through talking about Tasha or Shristi. We leave soon for Tibet. Be sure you're ready, she said. I'm ready, Billy said. God, I hope you don't have designs on Tristy. I couldn't take that. Billy swore. Are you jealous, he asked. You look at her funny. Not jealous, Sophie said. Concerned about your behavior. You like her, Billy said. Very much, Sophie said. Not that. You know what I mean. I don't, Sophie said. It's not like Tasha and me, is it? That kind of love between girls. Shristi's a child. Don't be thinking she's a woman, Sophie said. Sophie looked for the carving of Shristi, but it was cut down into smaller, various-sized pieces to be reworked for other images. What happened to your masterpiece? She said, immediately sorry for her sarcasm. 
Billy didn't answer, but she could see sorrow in his eyes. He really loves her, she thought. I didn't mean anything, she said. He slumped as if defeated. She left quickly, upset she'd been so mean. Chapter 22 Nepal Page Page turned out the light clamp to the headboard of the single bed with a thin mattress. The cold seeped through the poorly constructed window, and she adjusted the flimsy hotel blanket but couldn't stay warm. Silver moonlight streamed in with a crisp, cold glow. Over the pajamas she already had on, Paige added a sweater and sweatpants from her bags. She was exhausted from hours of travel to Nepal, but after lying in the semi-darkness for hours listening to breezes that bristled outside and the movements of hotel guests in neighboring rooms, Sleep still would not come. In the morning, she went to see the hospital. Condoleezza and Victor had arrived two days before. Condoleezza was waiting at the front entrance. Victor's filming background material in the morning light, Condoleezza said without greeting. What have you found, Paige said. McDowell will meet with you now, Condoleezza said. Anything I should know? I get a sense he's only a small cog in the operating mechanism. There is an administrative staff of over 20 and a very competent CEO. You expected a uh, McDowell in fatigues operating with light from a campfire on a plank supported by two sawhorses and near-death patients waiting patiently in line that stretched for a quarter of a mile. Page smiled. We need to find the patients. Talk to them. I'll do it, Condoleezza said. Page was greeted by Hiram who rose from the modest, armless wooden chair behind the small knee-hole desk in his cramped office. Page Sterling, he said, extending his hand. Dr. McDowell, Page said. Hiram, please. They sat down, separated by silence, both searching for opening words. I'd like to thank you, Page began. This was the first time she'd seen McDowell up close in person. You're fatigued after the trip? McDowell interrupted. Wiped out, said Page. Where are you staying? Crown Plaza. My God, we can't have that. Really, it's not that bad. I wish I'd known, Hiram said. Excuse me for a moment. He left and was back in three minutes. We'll move you into the foundation condominium rooms we lease. My staff, Page began. She briefly thought about conflict of interest. We've already arranged for rooms for them in the south wing of the hospital. They can also eat in the cafeteria. Not great food, but dependable. Maybe I should call the hotel. I've taken care of everything. All your things will be in your room within the hour. I put you on the same floor as my daughter Sophie and near to my son Billy's place. So if you need anything, feel free to knock on their doors at any time of the day or night. Thank you. Of course, we'll reimburse. Never. You're our guest. He was more charming than she would have imagined, even if she'd thought about it. As they'd done their research, she began to think of him as almost robotic, ceaselessly moving without fatigue and inaccessible. But she seemed to be wrong. She asked about the hospital and the foundation, told them what they'd like to document over the next few days, and asked permission to talk to personnel and film the surroundings. He agreed to everything. I've arranged a trip to one of the villages for you and your staff day after tomorrow, he said. It's a weekly trip for my staff, 
You can see the work of the Mercy Foundation in action. Is that Rima? How curious Paige was about that relationship. But she didn't want to offend him so early in her visit. The trip was exactly what Paige hoped to see, and she expressed her thanks. Will you be working with your staff? she asked. I can't, he said. I'll be climbing in a few days. But I wondered if you'd like to trek with the expedition to the glacier. We'll be moving on to reach the mountain. But I can take an extra guide and porters for you to come back the next day. Gorgeous scenery. Will we see the mountain? Not the one I'll climb. It will take 13 to 14 days to reach the base and acclimatize. It's in Tibet. I didn't bring hiking gear. Dress warmly. We'll have jackets and boots and equipment for you. Take any of your friends you would like. They'll provide company for you on the way back. She liked being involved, but wondered about her conditioning. She'd hiked occasionally in national parks and on country roads. How would she fare trekking in Nepal all day for two days? Do I have to be in shape, she asked. We'll drive to meet the expedition, and the Range Rover will pick you up when you come back to the starting point. You'll like it, he said. McDowell showed her the operating rooms, the clinics, the wards. He introduced her to key personnel and spent some time praising Rima. She organized much of his schedule when he was in the city, he said. Then he handed Paige over to key administrative personnel who showed her the cafeteria, explained the hours, and encouraged her, Condoleezza and Victor, to use the foundation facilities whenever they needed. Then they toured the compound and the staff facilities. At day's end, the receptionist at the hospital walked with Paige a few hundred yards to her new rooms. Paige looked carefully, but she saw nothing threatening on the walk and felt comfortable that there would be no danger alone, even at night. She was slightly ashamed of her caution reflex bred by so many years living in Manhattan. The sitting room was comfortable, with a sofa, a table, and chairs. Her bedroom held only a single bed, with little room for other furniture. A small doorless closet next to the bathroom had all her clothes neatly hung. Her bags were on racks, her toiletries arranged on a shelf under a bathroom mirror. When she checked, nothing was missing. The two-hour trip to the village in vans with scantily upholstered seats left her sore where metal supports rubbed her back and legs. On the trip, she sat in the back with Sophie. Near the city, it was difficult to talk, but as they reached the country roads, the shouts and curses, blowing horns, and bleeding animals receded to a constant thrum. The van shifted constantly, but in higher gears that made less noise. Paige leaned to Sophie. You like it here? she asked. I do, yes, Sophie said. Sophie was a pretty girl with delicate features and very dark brown eyes that fixated for extended time on things, as if absorbing details. She was not unfriendly, but Paige did not feel warmth about her. Paige wondered if everyone felt the same about Sophie. Is life difficult? Paige said. Not really, Sophie said. It's living with the poverty that's difficult. Lives are incredibly hard here, and they don't need to be. They rode without speaking for a while. Why are you here? Sophie asked. We're doing a documentary special on your father. I know, but why him? And why come here? 
Your father is rumored to be in consideration for an important presidential task force. We want the public to know him, and his work here is widely admired. We came to document all that he's done. Sophie turned her head to look out the window, watching Nepal country and civilization pass by outside. Suddenly, she gripped Paige's arm. Look, Sophie said. The van had slowed to maneuver through a series of deep potholes in a segment of unpaved road. Sophie pointed to a refuse pile near a small stream a few yards from the road. A dark-skinned, emaciated woman in a ragged, filthy dress and bare feet held a naked infant on her hip. She was standing in trash, discarded carcasses, wet cardboard scraps, wagon and car parts, tree branches, and mud and metal cans amidst styrofoam fragments. She drank from a soup can she picked up and then placed the rim to the infant's mouth. The baby turned her head away. A male toddler without clothes and a small girl in a ripped, dirty gray dress that was once white foraged through the rubble a few feet from the woman, their arms up to the elbows in slop and excrement. That makes it hard here, Sophie said. Filth, disease, ignorance. Paige shared Sophie's feelings. The scene was inhuman and distressing, and Paige felt pain in her chest for the injustice of it all and she felt guilt that she was so privileged. The future for the woman and her children was unimaginable. I'm documenting the plight of women, Sophie said, trying to bring recognition to how desperate their lives are, without hope, without family support. Victims of rampant, often violent sexism, Sophie said. It makes me sick. The van sped up, and they were quickly around a curve climbing on a narrow, single-lane road with two-way traffic. At times they were close to canyon and cliff drops where the base could not be seen from the van. Paige intensely planned what she would do to survive if the van went over the edge, but she would live only a few seconds, long enough to feel the fall of thousands of feet and to hear the instant impact of van on rock and then the end. She was terrified until they reached the relative safety of the village. Before dawn the next day, they motored to the start point to meet with porters and guides and buy last-minute supplies. The expedition had seven climbers, twelve porters, two native guides. A Sherpa, who had climbed often with McDowell, allowed an interview by Paige about McDowell as a climber and a companion on the mountain. She got no sense of enthusiasm or admiration for McDowell from the small, squat man who spoke only broken English but she was sure he had no personal dislike, and he would treat all foreigners the same way. For him, McDowell seemed another foreign climber was simply a source of income for his family. Condoleezza wasn't thrilled about hiking and stayed behind to gather financial and patient confirmation at the hospital. But Victor came with Paige with cameras to shoot footage of Hiram on the trail. He would shoot an interview segment with McDowell and Page with a background washed with the setting sun before they ate in the evening. After two hours on the trail, Page had to stop and place a borrowed bandage on a blister on her heel. Soon she began to limp slightly. She kept her eyes down, afraid to trip on a loose rock or an icy spot, and she only glimpsed rarely at the mountains in the valley. As they slowly gained an altitude near 6,000 feet, her fingers, even inside her more than sufficiently warm gloves, felt numb with cold, especially on the hand that held the walking stick. 
She quickly felt miserable enough to wish she hadn't come, despite the vast landscapes and soaring peaks around her. She wanted to rest, and she began to dread sleeping in the open. Her imagination saw a sleepless night with penetrating cold and unidentifiable ominous sounds. In the evening, on a camp stool a porter provided, Paige sat around a fire made for her. Most of the climbers were already preparing various sized tents for sleeping. They all would be on the move two hours before sunrise. McDowell came to her and sat cross-legged on the iced ground beside her. Enjoy the day, he asked. Oh, I'm too out of shape. Do this for a couple of weeks and you'd be ready to climb mountains, McDowell said. Doesn't the altitude get to you? Most of us take acetazolamide. Many carry oxygen for the higher altitudes, and above 10,000 feet we ascend slowly, day by day, in small 2,000 to 3,000 feet increments. We sleep at lower altitudes when possible. Don't you worry about the dangers? What was it like on that tragic expedition in the 80s? He was slightly below her, and she looked down on him. He was looking into the fire, choked to speechless. That was terrible, he finally said. Was it mountain sickness? Partially, of course. Most suffered from the lack of oxygen. But it was a horrendous storm on descent. Surprised us. Your partner died. McDowell looked away. She couldn't see his eyes. Wolf, he said. Was there anything that could have been done to save him? I've read they have rescue teams. Limited rescue near the summit. Helicopters can't fly above 16,000 feet, and the rescue operation from base camp couldn't move with the weather the way it was. After you summited, you saw Wolf as you descended. He was almost dead. From sickness and fatigue. Did the weather clear? It was near zero visibility and 40 below when I last saw him. And he was alive when you had to leave him? Barely. He asked me if I made the summit. He was pleased, as I would have been for him. Looking back on it, was there anything you wish you could have done to save him? Paige asked. He frowned with irritation. She could see he was offended. She'd gone too far, or at least worded her question with a little too much aggression. But damn it, she thought, he left the guy. Everyone on the expedition followed accepted emergency protocols. We were trapped by one of the worst storms ever remembered, he said. So many died, Paige said. McDowell seemed to retreat within himself at the question. From many causes, he said. McDowell's eyes were moist. He wiped his eyes with a gloved hand. I'm sorry. I understand, Paige said. But she couldn't tell how sincere McDowell's emotions were. I see Wolf's family at least once a year, McDowell said. Those who survived get together over the years. Wolf was a good man. Page said nothing. McDowell seemed to need silence. He was a complex man. After a few minutes, McDowell stood and said goodnight. He asked if there was anything she needed before he left. She sat for many minutes until the fire began to die and then moved to her tent that a guide had carefully laid out for her. She didn't understand McDowell, and she couldn't grasp his contribution to the world as a physician. He seemed busy with so many unrelated things, 
and she needed to feel better about him to produce a special the way Rosenthal wanted to boost McDowell to national prominence. Paige spent seven days in Nepal. She was tired and coughing from the flu when she returned to New York. The humanitarian effort was impressive and deserved to be recognized. She'd learned a lot about McDowell, but she felt there was still much uncovered. Chapter 23 Nepal, Sophie The time has come for the scheduled trip to Tibet. On the last few days in Nepal, she and Billy attend the festival of Deshan to photograph. Billy stays close to Sophie, afraid to lose her in the crowds of celebrating families. Sophie is jubilant with the colorful costumes, the happy, smiling faces of the women, the joy and the laughter of the children. Sophie has difficulty getting distance from the crowds for wide-angle shots in the square. She frequently calls for a different lens, which Billy, having assisted for so long now, instinctively has ready. Rima, who spent much time with them for so long, is with her family today, some of whom have come from other parts of Nepal and the world to celebrate. Sophie sees children on swings at the corner of the square, their headdresses sparkling in the sun. She reaches in Billy's backpack for a Canon 800mm telephoto lens and attaches it to her camera. She stops to frame and focus. Billy surveys the faces in the crowd, proud faces of parents, harried faces of elder children creased with worry and responsibility, ecstatic faces of children basking in the finest costumes families can afford and dancing to music and playing with new friends or brothers and sisters. Which way is the temple? Sophie asked Billy. She is eager to document the intensity of the worshippers. Sophie has no sense of direction, and she is so focused on humanity that she rarely remembers architecture or geological details. He points to the east. He holds Sophie still as she begins to move. Less than twenty feet away is the slim figure of Shristi, garnished in a gown shimmering with red and gold, a tiara on her head and a splash of red on her forehead. She is at once demure and beautiful. She looks down when she knows Billy is looking at her. Don't think about it, Sophie says. Tristy holds the hands of two of her sisters, one on each side of her. Billy gives Sophie the backpack and walks to face Tristy, whose head remains bowed, her eyes down. She looks up when Billy says, I miss you, Tristy. But Tristy's English is not good enough to know what emotions hide in the tones of his simple words, yet he sees from her gaze that she shares his feelings. Billy places his hand over his heart and then points to Tristy. Soft moisture floods her eyes. She shares his pain at their being apart. Billy kneels down to each of the children, greeting them, trying to make them smile in their apprehension of having a foreigner so close. Billy stands and bows slightly as Shristi gazes into his eyes without reservation. How he misses Shristi's daily presence, her quiet kindnesses, her modest beauty. For a few seconds they are lost in each other, the ways their separation has intensified. Both know the feelings of the other, and both ache with the need to be together again. Sophie grabs Billy's arm and turns him around. He does not resist, and they begin heading to the temple. 
Don't fall in love with the impossible, Sophie says. Don't start, Billy begins. Listen, just shut up. You're thinking you can figure out some way to take her home when we go back. Billy's jaw clenches. It's impossible, Sophie said. You know that. Even if you could finagle the arrangements, what would you do with her? Keep her in a storeroom? Can you imagine her trying to fit into Denver? Limited language skills, no friends, unable to easily contact family, wondering if she would be a nurse now like Rama if she stayed in Nepal? Sophie won't admit to herself that she wants Shristi to go back with them. It would only provoke sorrow. She could never act or reveal her caring for Shristi. It was kinder to keep her here, immersed in the reality of a predictable future, than to be consumed by the perils of immigration to a new land, totally dependent on the immature Billy, and so close to Sophie's caring and desire. Sophie's heart would never be the same, whatever happened. It's not like that, Billy says testily. Bullshit, Sophie says. Billy will not speak. His aching heart floods his mind with images of Shristi. Rymo was right to keep you from chasing her. Jesus, Sophie, just be quiet. Can't stand the truth? I don't like you telling me what you think the truth is. With her jumble of feelings, Sophie can't know the truth, and Billy doesn't know his truths either. Billy might not be good for Shristi, and it isn't just about screwing, although he yearns to hold Shristi in his arms. Billy sees Shristi as a woman without guile, without rancor. She holds no envy or jealousy. Sophie is sure of that. To Billy, Shristi is a calm sea with no submerged creatures that can destroy and devour. He never thinks that any touch of evil could exist in Shristi's calm beauty. She seems vulnerable in her trusting of him, a trust he knows he could never break. To court her would bring anxieties and worries into her existence. She does not deserve them. And if he arouses desires in her, the pleasures will be replaced immediately with the greatest anguish. Sophie is sure Billy knows all this without thinking about it. Take the pack, Sophie says, kneeling to take a shot of worshippers entering the temple with offerings. Billy smiles at Tristy and her sisters beside her, her nieces behind her, and says goodbye before turning away. With Tristy out of sight, Billy says he wants to be gone from Nepal. He will never be able to live here without feeling her loss. Returning here is not something he will ever voluntarily do again. Thank God they will be off to Tibet soon after the festival. It might be a few days, but they'll be gone. Billy says he wants to go back to the States without returning to Kathmandu. Sophie knows his feelings. Chapter 24 New York Paige arrived an hour early to be sure she sat at the head of the table of this post-Nepal production meeting. She was apprehensive over the obvious increasing bond between Amara Yud and Perry Rosenthal, and she wouldn't let Amara take away a choice seat at the table for impact over crucial decisions. At the top of the hour, seven staff members, including Condoleezza and Victor the photographer, plus Rosenthal and Amara, began to arrive. Paige opened the meeting but Rosenthal immediately asked Amara, Where are we? We're still in discovery stages, Paige said, immediately blocking Amara's response. Let me hear what specifically needs to be done, 
Rosenthal stood to walk to a whiteboard and picked up a black marking pencil, looking around the table. Well, the script needs to be finalized, Condoleezza said. We're close. We need to make decisions on what and what not to include. Rosenthal wrote on the board, Number one, script. Well, I need to storyboard the Nepal trip, Victor said. It's not coherent, and I need input on the priorities. Rosenthal wrote on the board, Two, storyboard. What was the real purpose of Nepal, Rosenthal asked Page. Does the climbing stuff do anything for the health impact of the segment overall? Why would it make McDowell the president's man to go to on health care? The climbing is important. It's tied in with this foundation activity, Page said. We're not just an ad agency for the president and staff. We're journalists with responsibility to our viewers. Nepal is about climbing and health care a big part of McDowell's career and his success. We were showing the results. But there's too much about poverty and sickness, Amara said. McDowell's our subject, not wretched poverty and people barely surviving. The poverty is heart-wrenching, and McDowell makes changes for the better, Condoleezza said. I've seen the raw footage, Rosenthal said, the interviews, and McDowell's presence in Nepal was less than selfless. He went there to fund his expensive climbs. Keep that out of it. Make it all about health care. I have an interview with the author of the memoir. McDowell was a hero saving a child. We could promote that, Amara said, and that could at least introduce his activity in Nepal. That's good thinking, Rosenthal said. He's made a lot of money fundraising, Condoleezza said. It's impressive, Amara agreed. But we can't even determine if he's salaried or what expenses were covered, Condoleezza said. You've got an obligation to delve into that, Rosenthal said. We're painting a portrait of a man who will be in leadership positions, Page said. Good journalism demands a balanced report, not salary to expose. Have you any facts of misdoing? All I hear is innuendo, Rosenthal said. I think we should determine the facts before we decide to dismiss them, Amara said with self-importance. Spend time on it, Rosenthal said. But remember, we have a deadline. Rosenthal wrote on the board. Three, research. Perry's right, Amara said, smiling at Rosenthal and then looking at the group. We can promote his presidency of the Board of Regents for the International College of Surgeons. Rosenthal wrote, Four, Timeline. Condoleezza looks agitated, Page thinks. She is a top-notch journalist. She sees the Nepal trip as essential to an honest portrait of McDowell, even though she thinks it's inefficient and mismanaged from a financial viewpoint. And she doesn't like what she sees as McDowell's arrogant superiority over those around him. The foundation is big business, and even from a cursory examination, it's profiting from raising money for a charity, Page said. Look at the whole operation, Condoleezza said. Their operating expenses yearly are in the high eight figures, maybe more. It's above the national average. We really need to expose the excess. The foundation funds the charity, Page said. We should emphasize the source. There were thousands of lives saved, weren't there? It's not pretty. We found specific documented health care benefits only in the hundreds from the records we could access. And useful follow-up on care results is damn near impossible. 
We only know what the Foundation and McDowell release about the benefits to the poor and sick. But the surgeries they must do, Amara said, that has to be verifiable. Not so easy, Condoleezza said. The records are spotty and hard to find. They do preventive health, too. Vaccines, education, I know that, Amara said. I'm not saying they don't do that, and that benefits are not to be admired easily, Condoleezza said. But there is no reliable record of the scope of the benefits available and the benefits actually received, or an estimate of the value to the recipients that we can compare to their fundraising results. No comprehensive data. And the organization lives high on the hog. Do you think it's a bogus effort? Rosenthal said. Not bogus, not illegal, Condoleezza said. Just loosely run and profitable to levels we'll never document. What does McDowell have to do with it? Amara said. He founded the organization so he could climb mountains, Condoleezza said. You can't prove that, Rosenthal said. Maybe not document, but pretty clear, Condoleezza said. The math is suggestive. What they bring in from government support, tax exemptions, donations, grants, and sales compared to the ratio of what they spend on charity, what they spend on themselves, and what happens to surpluses is not standard for good organizations. From my estimates, less than 40% over the gross income goes to the needy, if that much. Well, we're not doing a special on charity operations, Rosenthal said. This is McDowell, a leader in health care. Emphasize the good. The president wants him. You spin this, and it could come back to bite us, Condoleezza said. We've got to be honest, Page said. It's impossible to report everything. It's our job and prerogative to pick and choose, Amara said. But not cover up, Page said. If you're leaving out a balanced presentation for a positive political effect, it's not admirable, Condoleezza said. It's what we do, Rosenthal said. What do you really think, Amara? Page glanced at Condoleezza and looked away, ashamed she was so afraid to lose even her weakened status in the organization. I should speak out for what is right, she thought, for balanced, objective journalism with no spin. But this special has a political purpose that's common and not illegal. And every human has two sides, even more. And how to know what is right to present, wrong to leave out, or prudent to ignore is what we deal with in every special we produce. And Rosendahl's the boss. He's making the decisions here and having Amara implement his wishes. It's suicide to buck him now. He has too much at stake. Amara spoke before Paige had a chance to articulate her thoughts. I wouldn't suggest a hint of wrongdoing in fundraising unless there is solid proof, Amara said. Exclusion of suspicions is right, and that's what we should do. It's honest journalism, Amara said. But it isn't honest reporting McDowell's character, Paige thought, with a pang of remorse. She could not look at Condoleezza. Exclusion of important facts for political gain is not what we should be about, Condoleezza persisted. Condoleezza was an admirable colleague, honest and unafraid. That's crazy, said Rosenthal, and that's not what we're doing. I agree, said Amara. McDowell's name will soon be a household word, Rosenthal continued. I did make commitments, and the timing is important. We need to get this out, and without innuendos. There is nothing wrong with that. 5. Nothing politically damaging, 
Rosenthal printed on the board in capitals. Less than two weeks later, Rosenthal called Pei Jin. She sat in the chair in front of his desk. The president's chief of staff called, Rosenthal said. The White House confirmed they're putting McDowell before Congress for confirmation for Secretary of Health and Human Services. Is he really qualified, Page asked. We have three weeks, he said. Well, I need to get legal started. I have Condoleezza vetting. I want to do a couple of focus groups. I've changed my mind, Page. This piece has to be the best. It will be, Page said. You're not going exactly in the direction I wanted. My attitude is fair reporting with truth and balance, and we need to support McDowell's nomination. I don't like your balance. I'm putting Amara in charge. What's in charge? Page asked. What does that mean? She's the lead. She's a babe in the woods. I don't believe that, Rosenthal said. She'll be on air, too, in place of me? Yes, and she has full control of content. She'll be doing the editing? Totally, and without you looking over her shoulder. I am healthcare, Page said. This is Amara's, Rosenthal said. That's wrong, Page said. You know it's wrong. She told herself she knew this would happen, but it didn't ease the pain. You're making a mistake, she said. I made a mistake a long time ago, Rosenthal said. I should have let you go. Chapter 25 Page's Condo on 72nd Street, near 5th Avenue Page greeted Condoleezza at the door. It's time? Condoleezza asked. A few minutes. Red wine do you, Page asked. In minutes they were settled in Page's common room in separate armchairs looking at a wall-mounted 50-inch TV. How's it going with Rosenthal? Page asked, using the remote to find a channel but with the remote on mute. You know he's still fucking that Amara twerp. It's lasted longer than with his usual bimbos. I suspected. He's such an asshole. Wait till you see what they put together. Your script? Page asked. None of it. Little Twinkle Eyes did it. I see her in my nightmares. Little Miss Muffet sitting nude on Rosenthal's prong-inflated lap in some ridiculous satin-covered sofa in his bedroom. I bet they watched porn flicks with 3D glasses on, and he never read the transcript even once. The prick. The special on Hiram McDowell came on. Good evening, Amara said, sitting in a director's chair with her legs crossed, her skirt hem two and three-eighths inches above her knee, an open leather folder on her lap, but obviously staring at the teleprompter. I'm Amara Oud. Tonight we examine the astounding career of Hiram McDowell, the president's nomination for Secretary of Health and Human Services. It's a story of hardship, determination, persistence, devotion, caring, precision, and accomplishment. Hiram McDowell, it's all fluff, isn't it, Page said. What else would you expect, Gondoliza said. Well, he's not a saint. Maybe he'll make a good Secretary of Health and Human Services, Condoleezza proposed. Not if he needs to stay in one place for more than a few days. Maybe a moth-eaten integrity and spotty family devotion don't count as deterrence to cabinet members' appointments, 
and he can accrue ideas from a mountaintop in Nepal. Amara narrated scenes from early years in Louisville, teaching in Denver, the International College of Surgeons in Chicago, the Foundation headquarters in New York, and then brief scenes of the hospital in Nepal. Before the end, Amara introduced the author who collaborated on Hiram's memoir. She ignored an interview Page had produced for the special and made no reference to it. You won't believe this, Condoleezza said, directing Page to look at the screen. Amara asked the author about the earthquake. It was in the spring. The beginning of April, uh, 1976, the author said. 7.5 on the Richter scale. Villages destroyed, hundreds dead. And Dr. McDowell, working alone, saved a life still in the womb of a mother dying from injuries, Amara said. A wall fell on her, crushed her legs. Dr. McDowell heard her cry as he and his team were searching the rubble. A panoramic view of an earthquake seen from the air was shown for seven seconds while they spoke. Alone, away from other searches nearby, using only a Swiss army knife and strips of cloth he ripped from his shirt, he delivered her baby. Alive? Amara asked. Yes, by C-section. And the mother died? She died just before the delivery. And the child, alive today? In school in Kathmandu, thanks to the generosity of Dr. McDowell. There was a picture of Dr. McDowell sitting in the center of a circle of young children. One child was on his knee. Is that the child? Amara asked. Yes, uh, I, I believe so, the author said. It must have been a pleasure working with Dr. McDowell. I feel blessed I had the opportunity to interview him. Amara began her closing. That's not the picture of the man we would have presented, Page said. Nothing of any depth, Condoleezza replied. Sentimental rubbish. Nothing to let anyone believe he won't make at least an adequate Secretary of Health and Human Services. And nothing to believe he has any special skills or traits to do anything better than the guy that rotates your tires every six months, Condoleezza said. And I don't have a car, Page said. Condoleezza laughed. On the West Coast, 2,700 miles away, Michael O'Leary turned to his wife. Turn it off, please, he said. The credits of Amara's special faded. It can't be true, Michael said. What's that, his wife asked. Listen, Michael said, dialing the number of a New York Times reporter friend on his cell. His wife listened to the one-sided phone conversation, the voice on the other side of the phone barely audible. Jason, O'Leary said when he connected. Did you see that special on McDowell? Most of it. Well, that story about delivering the baby from the dead mother in the earthquake zone, it can't be true. Why not? At the beginning of April that year, Hiram was in Chicago getting ready for a board meeting. His longtime secretary of the college was being honored at a special dinner. So what? Hiram was not in Nepal the first few days of April. Well, they made a mistake on the date. It's in the book. Hold for a minute. Michael turned to his wife. Get Hiram's book for me, honey, please. Michael thumbed through the pages. Yes, it's here, he said to Jason. It says 1976. There's an earthquake photo. It's not dated. How do you know about Hiram in Chicago? Well, this was his administrative secretary. She was good. 
and when she retired after her 25th year, the board gave this dinner and party, and Hiram made the presentation. He tied it into an April Fool's joke, a bad joke about one doctor pushing his cloned identical self-doctor to his death from a tall building for being rude and sexually inappropriate to patients, and the doctor was arrested for making an obscene clone fall. Not many of us forgot that. It doesn't make sense, Jason said. Why would he lie? Look, McDowell is capable of making things up for gain. He's not malicious, but he is ambitious. I would believe saving the kid might be a true story sometime in his career. Most surgeons have similar dramatic experiences, but I am sure it didn't happen at the time he says it happened in the memoir, Michael said. Maybe it's within the poetic license of the co-author. I don't know, but I think they should be held accountable to truth, that's all. Well, I agree, Jason said. I'll look into it. Who was the moderator of the TV session? Amara something, Michael said. Michael hung up. Hiram didn't save that baby? His wife asked. Not when the co-author in the book said he did. Maybe some other time? That's probably right. But knowing Hiram's marketing fervor, it could have been fantasy based on a collection of memories real and imagined of some other event. I hope not, Michael said. Will he be Secretary of Health, his wife said. Probably. I doubt anything will come of this. Even if Hiram lied to the author, the courts are leaning to no illegality of falsehood in memoir. But one thing I'm sure of, he doesn't deserve a cabinet post. Not only for this, but for many other nefarious reasons. Chapter 26 Washington Museum of Natural History Sophie the president presented Hiram as the new nominee for Secretary for Health and Human Services in the Rose Garden on a Thursday, and family members were invited. Most of the family arrived the weekend before. They stayed at the Willard. All had planned to visit the sites of Washington, but Penny got sick, and Anne stayed with her at the hotel when Robert, Sophie, and Jeremy went to explore the museums. They went first to the National Museum of American History. Sophie, Robert, and Jeremy came to a locomotive with six massive driving wheels on each side and with carriages of smaller wheels in front and back. Are you interested in engines? Sophie asked Jeremy. It's a locomotive, he said sullenly. He pointed to the sign, Southern Railway, and 1401. Jeremy had a train set in the basement, O-Gage, Robert said. Do you still have it? Sophie asked. Jeremy shrugged. He destroyed it, Robert said. Twelve thousand dollars. I didn't, Jeremy said. Don't lie, Robert said. It stopped working because you hammered it with a bat. Sophie touched Jeremy's arm. Do you know how this locomotive works? Steam, Jeremy said. How do they make steam? They heat water with coal, he said impatiently. It must have taken a lot of coal and water. 14,000 gallons of water and 16 tons of coal to go 150 miles. It could go a lot farther than that, Robert said. Why is it green, Sophie asked. It was a feature of the Southern Railway, Jeremy said. My engine was black with steel wheels. Was your engine steam? Electric. I had a steam model engine. 
but it wasn't a train. This carried the body of President Lincoln, Robert said. I'll meet you at the flag. I want a picture, he said, as he turned to separate from them. This locomotive was made about 1926, Jeremy whispered to Sophie as his father walked away. One like it did pull the body of President Roosevelt when he died, from Georgia, but not President Lincoln. Teddy, Sophie asked. FDR, Jeremy said. Thank you, Jeremy. You're welcome, he said. At the presentation two days later, the family, without the children, sat on the front row of folding chairs in the Rose Garden of the White House as the president introduced Hiram as the new Secretary of Health and Human Services. Hiram had insisted Ann not bring Jeremy or Penny. After prolonged deliberation, the university informally and clandestinely put Hiram on probation based on medical research misconduct handled by a private one-on-one -on -one talk with Hiram by the Chancellor. Hiram would take severe action against responsible staff and make public his solutions to correct any perceived problems or harms of the misconduct. He would remain chair, since most believed he was not directly involved in deceit. The school would continue to promote the image of Hiram as the world-famous surgeon he was and who had been duped by trusted members of his staff. Within the month, he received a letter from the Mercy Foundation. He'd been unanimously supported for another term as president of the board. He was thanked for his contributions to the foundation. By phone, the executive director, a woman Hiram had never liked, called to ask him to help lead the independent investigation of finances and reorganization of the foundation's administrative structure and change in personnel. Hiram thought his agreement to cooperate was generous and gracious but he planned to temper his influence in case discrepancies were revealed. He was unaware of wrongdoing, and if irregularities existed, he believed he had no involvement. He documented reasons and explanations for things he thought might come up under question. He consulted his personal lawyer to lay a carefully orchestrated paper trail that would exonerate him from any wrongdoing if investigations ever produced accusations and indictments. Chapter 27, Washington, Hiram The president's staff pushed for rapid confirmation for Hiram. The politics of health care had turned volatile and confrontational under the president's secretary. Hiram would be a change both parties yearned for. He was without political baggage and had strong credentials in delivery of health care, education, and health care financing. With less than a week to go, he was prepped and coached by seven individual experts for days. Today was his final session before the confirmation vote of Congress. This practice session was held in the boardroom of a firm of a lawyer consultant to the president's staff in a building with a modest exterior, but with an interior of overpriced art and flagrant decorative excess that outrageously inflated rental fees. Hiram sat in the middle of one side of a rectangular table for twelve. His three mentors sat opposite. Antonio Marchetti, whose office this was, was dressed in a burgundy and gray pinstripe suit, a deep blue stay-collar shirt, and a salmon-colored tie with paisley designs. His shoes were capped and spit-polished to a reflective shine. The other male lawyer, Crease Horn, 
everyone called him Buddy, dressed in faded jeans with a leather belt and a brass buckle inlaid with turquoise, a white shirt with an open collar, and a chrome-studded light blue denim vest stitched at the bottom and held in front with rawhide. He had a jeweled pin with diamonds and rubies and sapphires in the shape of an American flag about the size of a credit card pinned on the upper left. A small, overweight woman with short-cut black hair was a speech coach. She held a digital recorder that she'd used for immediate and later studied feedback to document what Hiram said and how he said it. She had on a cherry red suit with a knee-length skirt, an off-white blouse, and a jacket with two buttons and wide angular lapels. Mabella Hernandez. Hiram listened to general instructions. Each coach reviewed the basics of their specific areas of expertise. Look at the senators. Remove all signs of nervousness. Pause before answering and know what you're going to say. Don't get angry. Don't be defensive. Bridge from the question asked to the question you want to answer. Don't be negative. Review all the updated notes on every senator you'll be given the night before and again before the hearing. Be honest. If you can't be, say you'll have to review the facts, or you can't say at the moment, but you can provide that information later, or that you don't have enough information available to you. But don't use that too often. You could look incompetent. After four hours of practice questions and answers, the consultant said he was ready. Maybella stayed late to go over some details of his delivery, using her recorded data as reference of what he needed to improve. Hiram was exhausted and concerned that he didn't know how the consultants felt about his testimony. They weren't like, well, you nailed it, Doc. It was more like they couldn't do any more to improve him and they weren't sure how it would come out. What do you think might go wrong? Hiram asked Mabella, after the others had left and she had finished her delivery instructions. You get angry, she said. Most of those dudes in Congress are lawyers, everyone expert at destroying witnesses on the stand. I've seen it in expert witness testimony, Hiram said. You ever lose it as a witness consultant? Almost a couple of times, but never completely. What about those times you did lose it, even if a little? How did they attack you? Mainly attacking my credentials, my schooling, intelligence, that I was being paid for testimony and making it look dirty and dishonest. Don't let them get to you, Maybella said. Think of it as a duel of swords. Deflect their gambits and thrust back, she said. But be firm and gentle. You seem to have a tendency to yell. Chapter 28 Three weeks later, Condoleezza came into Paige's office. Paige led Condoleezza down the hall to the coffee machine for privacy. Did you see Amara's apology on week's end last night? Condoleezza asked. Paige said no. Here, I've got a video clip on my mobile. Amara sat alone in front of a backdrop of Nepal. She's using our material, Paige said. The supporting images were shots of victors when Paige and Condoleezza were in Nepal. Condoleezza propped up her cell phone screen. Amara looked youthful, successful, and savvy. She began, 
Dear loyal fans of Week's End, Recently we did a special on Dr. Hiram McDowell, his philanthropic activity in Nepal, and his new memoir about his experiences in raising the quality and availability of care in Nepal and neighboring countries. Since the airing, we've been made aware of discrepancies in accounts related to his memoir. I assure you I was not aware. The book has been withdrawn from the market. Do you know the details, Page asked? Nobody can verify McDowell saving the child from earthquake rubble that Amara described on the special. Remember? Condoleezza said. She had the ghostwriter read from the biography and patched in a response from McDowell from another interview. McDowell was never in Nepal during any earthquake that anyone can prove. He could have had the date wrong, Page said. They couldn't even find the child. They could have photographed any child. Amara didn't vet the book. She trusted the publishers to vet the facts. She and Rosenthal. Rosenthal would have approved what she did. Unbelievable, Page said. That wasn't the real crisis, Page. Lying in the memoir is common enough. But McDowell's publisher, Fornham and Mitchum, is owned by the same parent company that owns the network. Jesus, a real conflict of interest, Page said. Do you think Amara knew about the ownership? Possibly, but Perry must have known. You're right. Of course he knew, Page said. That's why he added the interview about the book to the special in the first place. Book sale profits boosted for a sagging publishing business. They were pressed, too, by the short time to the confirmation hearing. They had to cut corners. Do you think McDowell's confirmation will be affected? He's already blamed the heir and the author. I doubt he'll suffer, Condoleezza said. I just don't understand human beings sometimes, Page said. Why lie when you've got so much truth to validate your worth? Has Rosenthal contacted you about going back on the air? He's demoted tomorrow. She'll bounce back, of course, but right now she's got her tail between her legs. What's she doing? Page asked. She's back to news for local affiliates for a while. The sex must not have been good enough to keep her on top. He should have fired her long ago, Page said. It still could be good for you, Condoleezza said. No, even if he gave me back my old job, I'm not eager to go back to healthcare journalism. Where will you go? Maybe I'll do something different, Page said. A Julia Child stint? Cooking for celebrity singles? Weekly on cable? Page laughed. Chapter 29 Anne The dark living room felt alien. Anne was exhausted. She stared at the turned-off TV across the room. She stayed still, as if movement would bring danger and make her even more afraid of she knew not what. Fears consumed her now, fears so pervasive she feared having to live. She could barely remember joy or contentment peace and caring. Jeremy was expelled from school again. Robert rarely spoke to her. Penny was a spoiled, mean child, constantly demanding. Her life was repairing the broken, watching TV reruns to avoid despair, arguing without persuasion, feeling without love, dreading the future. The garage door went up. She could hear it, feel the vibrations. The engine died. The car door closed. 
A key pierced the lock of the kitchen door. Robert's steps pounded the floor. The lights flared with the sound of the wall switch activation. Shit, Robert said. Anne closed her eyes without looking at her husband. Why are you sitting in the dark? he asked. She broke into sobs. She had screamed at Jeremy again. He wouldn't sleep. He played killer video games with earphones on loud. He had to hide his hyperactivity, and he kept his music quick, loud, and annoying at full volume. She wanted to hit him, hurt him. She couldn't stand his disobedience just to be as rebellious as he could about everything. I can't take it tonight, Anne. I just can't do it. Anne stopped crying. She stared at Robert. It's over, Robert said. I could be going to jail. My God, she knew nothing about Robert's business, really. How could this happen? What about the family? How would she take care of the kids? She was completely alienated from her father now, after the wedding. Don't stonewall me, he said. She didn't really care. We'll be broke, he said. In so many ways, she thought. What about what Daddy gives us, she finally said. I don't know. It's a fraction of what it used to be. What about your family, Robert? They should help. They won't help, Anne. They have to. You know they can't. What about the inheritance? They won't share that. How could you do this? I didn't try to do this, Robert said. It didn't just happen to anyone. What happened? I was keeping you in the manner you've always demanded. I've never demanded. And Daddy took care of us. Robert came to her, leaned over and kissed her. I'm sorry, baby. I screwed up. He straightened back up. I love you, he said. I'm so sorry. When she didn't respond, he kissed her on the forehead and went to bed. Anne stayed on the sofa, brought her feet up, lay her head back, her head half propped on the armrest. The lights stayed on. She did not sleep. Before dawn, Penny came to her to demand breakfast and went to Jeremy's room to pester him awake. In the afternoon of the same day, in Denver, Hiram took a call from Sophie in New York. Robert's been indicted on security fraud, she said. Anne's not doing well. I don't get it, Hiram said. He makes good money. Embezzlement, too, I think. Anne is hysterical and fuzzy on the details. I'll call her, Hiram said. She expects you to bail him out. I don't think I can do that. I don't like him, and I don't have much anymore. We've got to help Anne, Sophie said. Hiram remained silent. Well, she's still your daughter and my half-sister, and I'm going to spend time with her. She sounds suicidal. I don't think you can ignore her. I told you I'd call her, Hiram said. Robert could go to jail, couldn't he? You go back to her, Hiram said. Get Billy over there, too. He's good with children. Hiram hung up. Chapter 30 Louisville Page After prolonged scrutiny, Hiram's pluses seemed to outweigh his negatives, and the Senate approved his confirmation. Three days later, Page entered the lobby of the downtown Marriott and tipped the bellman $20 for two bags delivered to her suite. Although never excessively wealthy like so many of her male cohorts, she still enjoyed exploiting her celebrity status even after being demoted 
She spent lavishly at times and enhanced her image whenever she had the chance. Besides, she was, thank God, still on an expense account for this assignment for Perry Rosenthal. Ten minutes later, she met Condoleezza and a camera crew in the lobby. Crews from two other networks were in various parts of the hotel. Condoleezza said, We'll start at the school. The chief investigator will wait for us. Well, that was good. Get the demographics of the tragedy and then start to investigate sources and witnesses. Rosenthal had been the one to send Paige, and she assumed the goal was to bring as much insight as to the causes as possible for a 20-minute segment perfected and wrapped up in the next 72 hours for a timely Sunday night primetime broadcast. Let the locals and the other networks describe the den and document the grief. All admittance to the crime scene area was restricted, and the police had to set up an area for journalists in a storage room of a nearby furniture store. During introductions and a briefing, the investigator, in his early fifties, seemed small-town and slow-witted, but his information would be invaluable as breaking news recorded at the scene. He would also provide an intro for in-depth segments, and he was more than willing to be filmed. They'd have to patch voiceover quotes. He wouldn't be good for an audio and a visual segment. He was unimaginative and wandered off topic. What do you know about the victims? Paige asked, holding a microphone up to the investigator's mouth. Twelve dead, he said. Five others taken to the hospital. I don't know their condition. All children, Paige asked. Not all. I don't know exactly. The search for more victims will take time. Paige glanced at a child's body, partially covered on a gurney, and so small there was barely enough to show a presence being rolled to a flashing EMS vehicle. Parents and onlookers were being held behind a barricade of wooden restraints and yellow crime scene tape. Survivors were being led out to mothers and fathers, neighbors and acquaintances, distraught with terror and grief. Who was the shooter, Paige asked. Pain suddenly burned in the investigator's eyes. She wondered if a child of his might have been one of the victims. Great stuff, after all. She signaled one of the cameramen with a slight hand gesture to get a close-up. He took his own life, from initial reports, not confirmed, the investigator said. He was a student here, Page asked. I don't know. Were there other shooters? Unlikely. She felt a potential for incompetency of local police to deal with mass killings. God, there had been enough of them that authorities should be prepared. But police response was not the focus of her segment. She would record but not dwell on the grief, focusing more on motives and desires and reactions of anger, despair, and revenge. She pressed on with her questioning. The shooter was a young boy. He was sure of that. He was not sure how the shooter died, but there was no longer danger of immediate killings. Page interviewed a few local bystanders. No one in the school at the time would be available. They were being held in a recreational indoor play area. Page called Perry Rosenthal. I want you live on the 6 o'clock national news, he said. I can't do it, Page said. This is emerging news for the locals for immediate release. We're better journalists than scraping for the sensational. We need to explore the causes. Just do it, Perry said. It's a crime, not health care. Why me? You were available. This is the third mass murder this year. There are issues. Societal violence. A youth culture brought up on violent video games. The decline of the family structure. Parental neglect. 
lack of gun control, school preparedness. I'm here. I've got an opportunity to investigate these issues for what could be a whiz-bang segment. We could air it in three or four weeks, still with the freshness of the horror of it all, but with enough distance and enough impact to suggest actions. Look, just report the killings, the shooter. How do you know so much? We know it's a male about 12 or 13. No one knows that, Paige said. I trust my sources, Rosenthal said. All the more for carefully considered in-depth coverage, then, Paige said. The kid needs to be punished if he lives. Don't contribute to letting him get off. I'll be objective. You just approve the plan and the timeline. Send my usual crew and stop worrying. I'll never let you down. Don't tone down the horror of it, Paige. Frame it for what it is, mass murder, inhuman. He's an evil kid. Why isn't Cupid down here for the sensational stuff? She met Amara, who was always worming her way back into Rosenthal's good graces. She would be, but we broke up two weeks ago. I'm not good with on-the-scene crime. I'll stick with finding out the influences. Use the locals for coverage of the immediate. I won't turn this into political advantage for the network. She would explore possible causes of this tragedy without unfairly targeting one that might easily be ballooned into political correct accusations. It's easy to try to influence the populace when they're collectively fresh from grieving a tragedy like this. They had to investigate this, try to understand the shooter, and find significant influences. Of course he's mentally ill, she thought, but there is more to it than that. Condoleezza joined Paige 30 minutes later. Well, Rosenthal thinks there needs to be tighter gun control, Condoleezza finally said. He wanted us to do on-scene coverage. I refused. He told me he wants to focus on gun control, a hot topic for the administration and ripe for the news segment. Doesn't any reasonable human want gun control, Paige said. But really, is that the solution? Does that answer these questions in this case, she thought? Gun control is an issue, but it's not right for us to use this tragedy to motivate political action. That's not what we should be about. We're journalists. We want to find the most supportable and reasonable explanation for this action, and only then can we contribute to preventing the violence around us. I'll do what's right, she said. Not just pragmatic politics. Condoleezza held up a folder. I've got the name of two of the victims. A woman and her daughter found shot in Oakland Estates, almost surely connected. The shooter shot himself, but is on life support and expected to live. The mother is critical, apparently at least one bullet in the brain. Who is she, Paige asked. Ann Patchett, McDowell's older daughter. Oh, my God, Paige said. And Perry assigned you and me because he thought we'd have an insight into the McDowell family, didn't he? Undoubtedly or he would have given it to Amara as a plum to woo her back for a few of her best fake climaxes. The bastard, Paige said. Jeremy, in an outburst of insanity, had killed 12 people, including Penny, seriously wounded his mother when he shot her with a twenty-two rifle, and then failed when he sat on his bed, placed one of his father's shotguns with a stock on the floor and barrel under his chin, and pushed down on the trigger. The blast blew most of his face off, but he could breathe and live to be placed on life support at the Louisville Hospital. 
The McDowells circled their wagons and tried to cope as best they could. Media attention was intense and constant for weeks. Paige Sterling and her staff prepared a special on violence in the schools and painstakingly particularized the McDowell family and the influence Paige thought they had had on Jeremy's actions. And she pinpointed with emphasis Hiram McDowell, the neglectful father. Chapter 31 Sophie picked up Hiram at the Louisville airport. He had hired a private jet from Denver before picking up Billy at a nearby motel on the way to Penny's funeral. Anne was still in the hospital heavily sedated and barely conscious from brain swelling and on assisted breathing while her lung wound healed. It's best, Sophie said to her father in the passenger seat. He did not respond. I don't think she knew we were there. Billy said from the back seat. I'm sure she does, Sophie said. It's hard for me to see her like this, Hiram said. Just talk to her. Tell her stories, Sophie said. Hiram shook his head. I'm not good at that. She knows you're there. I feel her responding when I talk to her. I don't think so, Hiram said. Maybe it's better she doesn't know about Jeremy for a while, Sophie said. Wouldn't she remember Jeremy, Billy asked his father. I mean, it must have been horrible. If she saw him, Sophie said, but if he shot her first before she had a chance to see him, she wouldn't know, and if she did see him, she might block it out. Who's going to tell her, Billy said. Someone's going to have to tell her. Uh, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, Hiram said. What's new on Jeremy, he asked. No change, Sophie answered. No one knows if he's conscious. He was unresponsive to any stimuli. They've got him heavily drugged to prevent internal swelling of the brain. How could he miss, Billy asked. He put a loaded shotgun barrel under his chin while sitting on his bed and pressed down on the trigger. How do you feel about it? Hiram asked Sophie. I wonder if we could have prevented it, Sophie said. I never suspected. But the suicide, Hiram asked. I don't know, she said. Does suicide absolve him from the killings as a show of remorse? I'm not religious now, Sophie said. What do you feel? Sophie paused. Anger, mostly. He was never right in the head, Hiram said, his own anger surging. Troubled, she said. A lot more than that, Hiram said. Chapter 32 A week after the murders, Anne remained in critical condition. The rest of the family arrived at the cemetery for Penny's burial service. A hundred-plus mourners clustered around the graveside service for Penny. Many distant and near-distant relatives attended who were so far removed from the McDowell family they had to introduce themselves to each other. There were teachers from Penny's school, and dignitaries involved in sorting out the details and trying to explain the motives. The press had been excluded from entry, but had a van with an antenna on the street outside the cemetery wall. The minister's words were sparse. Penny had a short life and an unjust death, and it was hard to be extemporaneously upbeat about the significance of her death or her impact on the future of the living. He tried to expound on philosophical generalizations about her unjust death contributing to expanding understanding of mankind, but it came off inept 
in thought and delivery. Sophie saw an attractive young woman with a pretty face, short hair, and a full figure that was trim. She was obviously uncomfortable in these surroundings with this crowd, avoiding contact with those around her. She wore a black designer dress that fit her well. Tasha, Sophie thought, how she's changed for the better. She must have come alone from Denver. Tasha could not have seen Penny more than once or twice in life. Sophie had not seen Tasha's mother, Carol, many more times than that. Her father and Carol had been divorced for years now, with little interaction between them. Sophie nudged Billy and nodded in Tasha's direction. Tasha, she whispered. Billy said nothing. At the end of the service, there was a chance to approach the casket. Tasha was among the first to pay her respects. Do you want to talk to her? Sophie asked Billy. She came a long way. Billy walked to the casket after Tasha had moved away, but Sophie was persistent when he turned. Talk to her, she said. With Billy hesitantly at her side, Sophie approached Tasha before she left for the exit to the street. How nice to see you, Sophie said. I'm Sophie. I remember, Tasha said. It was kind of you to come. It must be very hard for the family, Tasha said. It's not easy, Sophie admitted. Billy avoided Tasha's gaze. Is your mother well? Sophie asked Tasha. She couldn't come. And your sister? Well, thank you. How are you, Billy? Tasha asked, turning to Billy and putting her hand on his arm. He let her hand stay for many seconds before he moved, so she had to withdraw it. And that is why she is here, Sophie thought. Not just her son is part of the McDowell family, a fact never admitted but definitely known by all. Tasha was here to see Billy. She still loved him. Her child was not an accident. Did you bring Earl? Billy asked. Mother thought he should stay home. He's in preschool, Tasha said. And you, Sophie, what are you doing? I'm a hostess at a sit-down restaurant in Boulder. Sophie looked to Billy for him to say something, but he said nothing, still staring at Tasha. He can't find the words, she thought. He's overcome. Sophie said her goodbyes and asked Tasha if she had a ride. Sophie wanted Billy to spend time with Tasha, but it was not to be. She'd come alone by rental car and had to get to the airport. Sophie and Billy stood together as Tasha left. You weren't very friendly, Sophie said. Billy said nothing. She's very attractive, Sophie said. Billy still didn't speak. He was still watching Tasha as she stopped at the car and looked for her keys. Wait here, Sophie said, and left Billy to hurry to Tasha. Please keep in touch, she said. Could you give us your address and phone? We want to know what you're doing. Of course, Tasha said, taking out a pen from her shoulder bag and tearing off a back page of a magazine to write on. I live with my mother, she said. Thank you for coming, Sophie said, taking the page and folding it. She went back to Billy. She's very nice, she said. She handed the address and phone number to him. You keep this, she said. I think Carol still has a restraining order on me, Billy said. Not now. Restraining orders are not forever. And Tasha wouldn't have come if she thought it would be difficult for you. She's not that kind of person. 
After the funeral, Hiram closed the Louisville mansion, sent all valuable possessions to New York auction houses that would accept them, started procedures to get the house on the National Historic Register in preparation for sale. Sophie stayed with Anne as often as she could. Anne had recovered enough to regain function in her partially paralyzed right hand. She limped when walking, dragging her right foot with the toe pointing out. She had difficulty relating to others. Her speech was garbled at times, and she became frustrated when others couldn't understand. Sophie pleaded with her father to hire a full-time companion for Anne. Anne couldn't be left alone when Robert was away, and Sophie wanted to get back to New York, back to her career. She'd been away for weeks. Hiram hadn't responded yet. He was having financial difficulties. His income was reduced, and he was liquidating assets to avoid confiscation by debtors. Hiram spent many weeks in Chicago, developing his projects with the International College of Surgeons. The uproar over his false portrayal of activities in his book and criticism of his exposed misuse of charitable funds refused to go away. Michael O'Leary, after again presenting additional evidence of Hiram's wrongdoing to the Ethics Committee, convinced committee members to recommend Hiram's dismissal from the college for a full vote. Three weeks later, at the board meeting, after minimal discussion, Hiram was asked to consider resigning his presidency. It was more than a request. But he was not dismissed from the college. Michael O'Leary would be appointed interim chair of the board until the regular annual election occurred in February. Michael O'Leary was felt to be the best candidate to fill the position. Billy persisted in seeing his son Earl despite the objections of his ex-stepmother Carol. He obstinately dated a happy Tasha, who helped him spend time with Earl, away from her mother. Chapter 33 Sophie Billy and Tasha married in the ballroom of a ski lodge in Aspen. Neither had any church connections, but they hired a minister from an Episcopal church in Denver. A few days after the wedding, Sophie flew to Louisville to be with Anne. Anne wasn't functioning well enough on her own to travel easily, and Robert was not supportive enough now to be dependable when Anne needed him. Anne was at the extended care facility with Jeremy when Sophie landed and Sophie went to see her. Anne was in Jeremy's room, sitting beside a hospital bed with metal side rails. Foam cushions to keep pressure off stasis ulcers supported Jeremy's legs. His thin arms by his side had a faint bluish cast against the white sheets. His face, in various stages of healing and repair, was almost unrecognizable as human. His orbits were tiny caves with skin grafted to cover bone, but no remnants of eyes or lids. Without a lower jaw and nose, scar tissue left irregular surfaces where a mouth should be. He breathed through a tracheotomy. Monitors and respirators were clustered at the head of the bed. Anne stood and hugged Sophie. Anne had been crying when Sophie entered. Now she sobbed. How was he doing? Sophie whispered. Anne let Sophie go and stood back. She had dark half circles under her eyes. Her skin was loose and hung in folds on her neck. Her lips were cracked from drying. Her hair was cut short and unevenly. Faded brown strands that once had been lustrous were now streaked with gray. How can I know 
Anne said. What do the doctors say? Sophie asked. He's got brain waves. He seems to respond to loud sounds. Maybe he hears, but that's all. But you talk to him. Well, well, what's the use? Look, said Sophie, you take a break. I'll stay here for a while. Don't you want to come to the house? I'll be over later. I'll spend time with Jeremy. R Robert can come to get you. I'll take a taxi, thanks. I'll call to tell you I'm coming. After Anne left, Sophie lowered Jeremy's bed and let down the side rail. She pulled up a metal straight-backed chair and pulled up sheets to cover Jeremy's paralyzed arms and legs. She put her hand on his cold hand. Jeremy, if you can hear me, try to let me know. Do anything. Wiggle something. Try to make a sound. A turn of the head. Anything you can think of. I'll be looking, but might miss something, so if you can... Do whatever you can, over and over. We love you. We want to know if you hear us. We want to do things that will make you happy. I've brought a portable radio. I'll turn it to NPR. If you can hear it, I hope it makes you comfortable. I always remember the happy times with you. You are such a bright and capable guy. You made me happy and proud to be your aunt. I'm going to touch you a lot in places on your legs and arms and look to see if there's anything you can do to let me know you feel something. Sophie applied pinpricks and pressure touches. There were no responses she could detect. She used hot towels and a washcloth with ice cubes. There was no response. Good, she said. I didn't see anything, but I know you'd try if you could. So we'll do this again many times before I leave. I'm doing really well with my first photography book. Not so sure if the second will get published. But I'm sort of famous, and your Uncle Billy got married to Tasha. He is really happy to be close to his little boy Earl. Your dad hasn't found... Did his head move? Just the slightest jerk. Did you just move your head, Jeremy? If you did, try again. She waited. She repeated the instructions twice, but saw no movement. I thought I saw something, so keep trying. I'd love to confirm it. Sophie got up and went to her shoulder bag near the lounge chair in the room. She'd picked up a Harry Potter book in an airport bookstore. She sat in her chair close to the bed, placed the book on her crossed leg, and opened to the beginning. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of Number 4, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much that they were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious, because they just didn't hold with such nonsense. She read three chapters, closed the book, and leaned close to Jeremy's ear. We'll continue soon, she said. She'd seen no signs of movement, but she was sure his color improved from the chalky blue-white she'd seen when she first arrived. She called the nurse, and waited until the monitors and alarms were in place for the night before taking a taxi to Anne and Roberts. Chapter 34 Hiram visited for a day in Louisville from Denver, where he spent most of his time. He was no longer a part of the International College of Surgeons in Chicago or the Foundation in New York. 
Jeremy had been readmitted to acute care at the hospital for treatment for aspiration pneumonia the day before. From the airport, Hiram went to Jeremy's room. Sophie sat with Jeremy, letting Anne rest at home where she knitted in silence, unable to tolerate television or company. Sophie stood when her father entered. Where's Anne, he asked. She needed some time to herself. She's not doing well, Dad, Sophie said. Jeremy coughed, and Sophie moved to the bed and adjusted an oxygen tube that fed the permanent tracheotomy tube to his neck, then suctioned the mouth cavity. Does he understand anything now? Hiram asked. I don't know. I think he does. At times he seems attentive when you talk to him. Hiram walked to the bed. How could you do this? He said to Jeremy's unresponsive, flaccid form. Jesus did, Sophie said. He's ruined a family, Hiram thought. He's imprisoned his mother in guilt and hate. He demands total attention of others, never able to give. As a human, he's beyond comprehension. Hiram looked at Jeremy's mangled head. He could not know if Jeremy understood, if his brain even functioned on a cognitive level. He examined, with the intensity of a skilled surgeon, the partially scarred, half-healed, motionless face damaged from the shotgun blasting up under the jaw. There were no clues to Jeremy's emotional states, even if they were there, that anyone could depend on. What if he can hear you, Sophie asked, disliking Hiram's lack of compassion and talking so bluntly. He looked to Sophie. I hope to God he can hear me. He should be put out of his misery. He's a child, Sophie said, your grandchild. He must be suffering. How do we know what he thinks? He's never tried to communicate, Hiram said. I do think he tries sometimes. He has spasmodic jerks. Reflex, not conscious, Hiram said. Music seems to calm him at times when he's agitated. Something changes, some alteration of consciousness. Hiram leaned against the bed. He doesn't see, smell, taste, feel, or hear, Hiram said. Sophie still sat in the plastic upholstered hospital armchair. He might hear, might feel, she said. He doesn't respond to stimuli, Hiram said, testing again with pinches on Jeremy's skin. I think he moves his head when the music is his favorite. He's never going to be human, Hiram said. Anne tries to love him, Sophie said, but she hates everything he's done. She mourns for the victims. I don't think she'll survive. If he ever improves, how can she take care of him, Hiram asked. Can she understand him any better than we do? When do the doctors think he might be released to the family? I don't know, Sophie said. He needs full-time nursing. How long will the insurance last? How would she take care of him if the insurance runs out, Hiram asked. Or if he's not strong enough to be released from long-term constant care, we don't have many resources anymore. I don't think they can release him the way he is, Sophie said. But I don't know. Anne can't stand to be around him. She still comes here early every day that she can. And when the day nurse comes, she won't leave him. She stays till late afternoon, just sits here. She can't read. Her eye movement isn't quite recovered. She's crushed with guilt. For what, for Christ's sake? She never thought she was a good parent. Well, that's not what causes mass murder. Maybe it's the video game violence. 
easy access to guns. He went insane, Sophie. Some inner evil, Hiram said. I always thought he was a little off, but I never thought he was a killer. He could be very kind at times, Sophie said. You liked him? I did at times, and I don't hate him now. If he still has a life, he must be so alone, so afraid. This could go on forever, Hiram said, moving away from the bed. Clear this pneumonia and he'll be right back, suspended between living and dead with vital signs forever stable and electrical evidence of brain activity. And he'll be sucking the life out of all those around him. Sophie said nothing. Hiram slid an aluminum side chair to the corner of the room. He stepped up on the seat, reached up, and shoved the tube-shaped 8-inch security video camera off-center. Sophie stood up. She looked at her father, frowning, not understanding. What are you doing? Quiet. Sit down, Hiram said. Sophie stayed standing. Hiram waited, listening. Then he went to the open door, surveyed up and down the hall. No one's coming, he said. Hiram moved a few feet to Jeremy and gripped his arm. It hurts him, Sophie said. Hiram did not loosen his grip. He's not alert enough to hurt, he said. He's in there, Sophie insisted. Listen carefully, Hiram said. Go outside the door, lean against the wall, wait until I call you. Why? Just do it. He's choking. He looks peaceful, Sophie said. The secretions are building up. It's not for you to see, but I may need help. Stay outside the door. Shouldn't I buzz the nurse? Just stay outside the door and wait, Sophie. I'll handle it. Sophie moved to pick up the suction tube, but Hiram held her back. Do exactly what I told you, he said. This is one time I won't let you disobey me. Now go. I don't get it. Sophie? Hiram shoved Sophie toward the door. Sophie did as she was told. She waited outside watching the second hand on the wall clock. Four minutes. She heard nothing through the door until Hiram called. She opened the door. Run for help, Hiram said. He's suffocating. Use the call button. I said run. I can't find it. In minutes, personnel and equipment had arrived in Jeremy's room to begin resuscitation. Sophie leaned against a sidewall as far from the work of the emergency team as she could be while still remaining in the room. Jeremy was dead. She was horrified. Still, Hiram worked feverishly with other personnel to revive him. But he was dead. The presence of death frightened her. Chapter 35 Nurse Katrina Ophel was born, raised, and schooled in Belgium and came to America when she married her American-born husband, who was now comfortable with the savings from success in sales for a farm machinery parts distributor. Nurse Ophel trained in Detroit for her nursing. She was on duty the day Jeremy died. As was routine in hospital deaths, the week after Jeremy's death, Nurse Ophel reviewed the tapes from two wide-angle security cameras in Jeremy's room. She reviewed all the videos for the time Jeremy was in the hospital until after his death. On the afternoon of the death, she clearly saw Sophie arriving and sitting with the patient. She fast-forwarded, expecting to see the death. There was no sound on these monitors. The grandfather arrived and he talked to his daughter. 
Then the camera angle jerked away from the center of the room to focus at an awkward angle on the sink and the open bathroom door, misdirecting the view from the patient. There was nothing on the video for many minutes until the anesthetist with an emergency team she knew went to the sink briefly to wash hands. Nothing else was visualized. She fast-forwarded to about three hours later. The camera was moved again to focus on room center. There was an LPN tucking fresh linens on the bed. The janitor in scrubs is mopping the corner of the room with a squeegee mop. The entire episode was not on video. The monitors were mounted under the counter at the nursing station, a poor choice, or someone might have seen the misdirected camera. She reviewed images from the second monitor. It took a few minutes to find the segment. The lens focused on the back of Hiram standing at the bed. The patient was motionless, but the grandfather seemed to be working, his hands in front but not visible, near the boy's head. Nurse Ophel mentioned the observation of the one misdirected camera at Daily Report. The chief nurse asked the doctor on duty the night of the death about it, showed him the video on Fast Forward. He didn't see an obvious reason for misdirection until he studied the second camera's video. He took the videos to the chair of the Quality Assurance Committee for an opinion as to what they interpreted and whether it had any significance. The next day, the video was presented to the risk management manager, who couldn't explain but thought it should be investigated. A lawyer contacted by risk management for advice found the video curious enough to report it to authorities. He felt the video showed the possibility of intentional interference with respiration. He asked for vital sign monitor records, but they were not available. They were erased after 24 hours. An investigator arrived and agreed that there were odd circumstances. The video was sent for laboratory scrutiny with contrast enhancement and magnification. The investigators seized other videos in other rooms and from other halls. Just after the time of camera misdirection, maybe a minute or a minute and a half, a young woman came out of the room and leaned against the wall, her head down. She barely moved for more than four minutes, then ran to the door, opened it. She did not go in, but she listened through a crack in the door for many seconds. She seemed to say something, then she ran down the hall to the nurse's station. Personnel came into view on the run toward the dead boy's closed door. Sophie visibly grieved Jeremy's death. Hiram seemed matter-of-fact and left the next day for Denver to see patients. Nurse Ophel, as a dedicated caregiver, had long been opposed to euthanasia or taking the life of a living creature in any way. She knew Jeremy's injuries and health status well, knew he was brain-injured, but with measured electrical evidence of not being brain-dead. She believed he was physically strong enough and could be kept alive indefinitely. His pneumonia was acute due to staphylococcus, but not resistant to most antibiotics, and recovery had been expected to begin in 24 hours, with complete recovery in a few days. She was aware of pro-life groups eager to suppress the acceptance of assisted suicide in America, where the criminality was debated. Inconsistent laws for and against were in place, and court cases that had been tried had stimulated strict but varying requirements in the few states that had legalized assisted suicide. The death had been classified as asphyxiation due to complications from his pneumonia, but with her suspicions, her anger mounted that a doctor could have taken a life for any reason. Dr. McDowell may have wanted revenge for the heinous crime that ruined his family, 
or he may have wanted euthanasia, though no one could know what the boy wanted. But neither were right in the eyes of God, and neither were legal in Nurse Ophel's mind, although she was well aware of the legal controversies. She reported her suspicions to authorities, and now investigators were in the hospital daily. She felt a rising anger at her certainty that the boy's death had not been due to complications from risk associated with the patient's injuries. She contacted the nearest right-to-life group with any substance in Chicago. They listened eagerly to the circumstances and then came to Louisville to fact-find and quickly claimed criminal intent against Hiram McDowell. With clever reporting, they could rekindle an issue of anti-euthanasia or pro-life, which had lost intensity over the last year. An investigative team was formed by local police. All hospital personnel were interviewed. The doctor, Hiram McDowell, was in Denver and wouldn't be available until Jeremy's burial. The boy's aunt, Sophie McDowell, had been contacted at the dead boy's mother's house. She had refused to be interviewed. Detectives would have to arrest her to talk to her. They didn't have anything specific enough to charge her with. Why was she hesitant to speak out about the death if nothing was wrong? It pointed to guilt. As the investigation proceeded, detailed analysis of the recording from the diverted camera that was acted during the death clearly showed in the mirror over the sink that motion at the bedside could be seen but was not well defined. The video was sent for expert analysis in Indianapolis. Days of work clarified the images of Hiram McDowell working over Jeremy at the bedside at the time of death. It was clear McDowell was not resuscitating the boy, but the angle was not precise enough to reveal McDowell's actual actions. Still, suspicions were heightened when it was clear that McDowell called to his daughter in the hall, his manner calm but deliberate, and then he hesitated in a pensive pose for 30 seconds before positioning the boy for resuscitation. At no time did McDowell take action to prevent the asphyxia that was the cause of death, and the evidence would be suggested that he caused the asphyxia and death. And except for two brief periods of less than two or three seconds, McDowell was always in the mirrored frame recorded on the video. Chapter 36 Sophie still worked in New York for the studio. She stayed with Ann and Robert when Hiram was arrested. She would be a key witness in the trial for the murder of Jeremy. The prosecutors asked her to testify and threatened subpoena if she didn't cooperate. Hiram's defense team expected her to testify for Hiram and wanted to depose her as soon as possible as a witness for the defense. Sophie agonized over the decision. She would testify only to the facts of what she knew about the day of Jeremy's death but I think my father may have done it for Jeremy, for all of us, she thought. But suspicion shouldn't condemn him. If her father had taken a life, although the defense was trying to make that as unclear as possible, she would make no assumptions, offer no conclusions, no matter how many times she was asked. Sophie would stay with Ann and Robert while they awaited trial developments too. National attention had made trial preparation intense. Billy came from Denver. Robert had been convicted on multiple charges. He served a six-month sentence and would be under probation for years. He was selling BMWs 
at a Louisville dealer and spending as little time with Anne and her extended recovery as possible. Anne walked with a limp and spoke with slurred speech and aggravating pauses while searching for thoughts. She often seemed to want to say something, but could not think of what it was or how to express it. She had recovered enough to care for herself and do basic housework. The trial took three weeks. Paige wrote an op-ed based on her nationally televised segment on McDowell after the murders. Perry Rosenthal had uncharacteristically supported her over Armara, and he also concurred with the content of the op-ed. Doctor convicted of second-degree murder of disabled grandson, euthanasia defense denied by Paige Sterling. The high court convicted Dr. Hiram McDowell of second-degree murder in the death of his disabled grandson, who was accused of mass murder in a school two years ago. Dr. McDowell pleaded not guilty. The McDowell defense rested on the claim that Dr. McDowell was not guilty of murder, but assisted the suicide of his grandson, Jeremy, during a hospital admission for non-drug-resistant pneumonia. His grandson was severely physically and mentally disabled after a self-inflicted suicide bullet to the head within an hour after he allegedly systematically shot to death ten children and two adults, including his sister. At the time of death, he was on life support. Initially, Dr. McDonald denied any complicity in the boy's death, but video circumstantial evidence convinced the court otherwise. The legal status of assisted suicide is not consistent throughout different states, but the court, with its best judgment based on extensive criminal and state and federal investigative evidence, determined that the action taken by Dr. McDowell did not match even the basic guidelines for euthanasia in the states where it is legal with strict guidelines. Right-to-life groups feared an acquittal of Dr. McDowell would lead to court rulings and state and federal laws that fostered an unconstitutional right to assist in the death of a patient who desired death. The court agreed. In one of the infrequent jury trials involving a euthanasia defense, that assisted suicide could be non-criminal under certain circumstances, but this case was clearly death to an invalid without consent or indication. That the victim was an alleged mass murderer could not be admitted or considered during trial or deliberations. The appeal process is complete. McDowell could face up to 50 years of imprisonment. He will be sentenced on the last Thursday of the month. A physician has been convicted of murder. Just or not, we failed to uncover the slightest understanding of why his grandson killed so many innocent children and adults. So many causes are proposed that promote anger from those who have economic or personal interest. Yet there is no consensus and no call to action from legislatures or the public on the influence of lack of gun control, violence in our society glorified by TV, film, video gamers, the deterioration of the traditional family, apathy to the quality and availability of mental health care, genetic predisposition. We've convicted a grandfather of murder, and we've never uncovered a reasonably punishable motive, revenge, compassion, love, hate, and we've made no advance on understanding the cause or what is just in the punishment of mass murder, much less a child. Worse, there is little outrage to demand a change in our society. 
The horror dissipates. The anguish of the victims and their families recedes, and our focus drifts until the next unforgivable act occurs. That is our shame, a crime to the living, this tolerance of inaction to prevent tragic, violent victimization of innocence in the future. This ends Episode 2 of McDowell, a novel by William H. Coles. You'll find links to all episodes of McDowell and the iTunes Google Play feeds at storyandfictionpodcast.com. I'm Bill Coles, your host, and this podcast is produced by storyandliteraryfiction.com. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.